Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. Today, we are talking about your year-end financial planning. The power of the 529 plan, in my opinion, is not for the certain states that you live in where you get a a state tax deduction. That's just sort of the carrot that gets people into the plans, Mm. but is the long term. So if you're putting money in while your kids are in grade school, you're getting tax-free growth of 10, 15 years of tax-free growth. And that's really the power of the 529 plans, not to use them short term for elementary school. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Okay, it is December. Do you know what that means? It means you have got to get your act together and take advantage of the calendar year end. There may be some things you really should be focusing on. I know that it is very difficult to concentrate on money in the midst of the holiday season, but we are dropping this episode At the precise moment, I think you've got enough bandwidth to handle it. We've got great guests. We've got Michael Goodman and Brenna McLaughlin from Wealthstream Advisors, and they are going to help you figure out what you need to do over the course of the next few weeks. So year-end financial planning, we got you covered. Here's our interview with Brenna and Michael. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. It's that time of year, ladies and gentlemen. It is year-end financial planning, tax planning. We have two experts. Michael and Brenna, you guys are really immersed in this. You still are in the client business, and I am no longer. I just talk to people on the radio. But before we get into your year-end, we are going to start with our favorite question. Brenna, what is the best financial or career decision you've ever made? So the best career decision I ever made was actually to change careers. What were you doing? I was a magazine editor <gasps> for many years. In what? I don't think I knew that. What mm-hmm. magazines? I worked for a variety of magazines at Condé Nast, finishing at a magazine called Elegant Bride, which is now defunct. Oh, my God. That is a nightmare magazine right there. <laughs> the Elegant Bride. Exactly. Oh. Here's how we're going to suck you into the great wedding machine. You're going to spend way more money than you should. And as my father and said, always liked to say, you end up with a dress you wore once and a dirty cake knife. There you go. Mm. There you go. So, How did you decide to get into financial planning? So I'd always, always had an interest in finance. I started taking classes and just kind of delved deeper and deeper into personal finance and found that it was something I really enjoyed. Then learned about the CFP designation, which I decided to pursue and then made the jump. And it was scary to start a new career in my 30s Mm. to take an entry level position with people who were, you know, 10 years younger than me by my side. But it really paid off and I love what I do. And was your first job at Wealthstream Advisors? No. I started at a different firm, but always had my sights on Wealthstream. Who wouldn't? Because here we have the founder, Michael Goodman, founder, friend, And uh, my money manager, by the way, just full disclosure, I should probably say that. Uh, Michael Goodman, what is the best financial or career decision that you've made? So I would have to say that the best career decision that I ever made was quitting my job while my wife was pregnant with our first child after we had just put the down payment on our first home to start my own business. You're out of your mind. Was, and that just shows you that Maria is a very calm force and a very big cheerleader for you. Yeah, no doubt. Having a secure job at one of the big four accounting firms uh, and then you know handing in your resignation papers to start your own business is not necessarily up front look like a very good financial planning decision. But in hindsight- So far, so good. How many well. years ago was that? Uh, a little over 22 years now. Oh my God. 
So 22 years doing this, were you, but you were you doing financial planning or just straight up accounting when you were working at the big firm? At the big firm, I was doing not only straight up accounting, but auditing, mm. which you know doesn't even have anything to do with tax. But at a prior firm, I'd done a lot of tax work. And like most hardworking young accountants, I had a bit of a side tax practice that I was working on. Oh, he had a side hustle before we had side hustles. Um, okay, so we're talking about the year-end planning. And Brenna, how long have you now been doing this this financial planning gig? I've been in the financial planning gig for four years now. So, I mean, why is it so hard for us to get people to eat their vegetables? I mean, do their, their year-end financial planning or tax planning? I mean, you're essentially saying to somebody, we want to help you save money. Why do you think people have that barrier to doing this? I think people are still a little bit intimidated by finance. And that's something that we really try to work on is making people feel educated and empowered so that these tasks don't seem so hard to tackle and they seem like things that they can take care of and really improve their financial lives. But Michael, why, what do you think? I mean, you've got very sophisticated people, smart people, right? You got a great clientele. Why is it that people just can't get their minds focused around this? Do they basically say, eh, you just do it? They don't want to be bothered? What's your experience? Well, the clients that we typically work for, no doubt, are traditionally good delegators of that, not only because perhaps they aren't interested in it, but also because they appreciate working with an expert. As we've all moved further in our careers, everybody's become very specialist-oriented. Mm-hmm. So knowing that you can go to this for this is a, is a wonderful thing. But Brenda does make a good point about the fact that these people procrastinate. I think in the past it was kind of more appropriate to, you know, you'd pick a name out of a, a book and you'd go to your doctor that you never met before and get undressed, but it was not okay to talk about your finances. So it is more of that today, a little bit better with people like you doing great podcasts and sharing um, good motivating messages. Brenna, um, this is an interesting year because this is our first year of tax reform or tax cuts. Mm-hmm. Let's say people don't have advisors. They're doing this themselves. Best place to start when you're thinking about the year end. And let's try to capture this moment, this moment of, let's say, the first two and a half weeks of December where we, we really, two weeks essentially. We got them for two weeks. What do they need to do first? I think it would be a great place to start by looking at 2017's tax return. And what am I going to look for there? Whether your income has changed significantly. Mm-hmm. Is this year going to be a bigger income year or a lower income year for you? Also look at your deductions. One of the biggest change in the tax law is to standard deductions and itemized deductions. Mm-hmm. Standard deduction has increased. Certain itemized deductions are limited. So it really could change people's tax pictures. So let's say I'm, I know I'm looking at my tax returns from this, you know, looking at 2018. And I say, oh, you know what? 2018, huge year for me. I made a bunch of money. 2019, I don't think I'm going to make as much money. What should I do with that information? If I am making more money for this year, what should I be thinking about before year end? could think about ways to defer some of that taxable income into the future. A great way to do that would be to try to max out your pre-tax retirement accounts. If Mm. you've got a 401k at work, try to hit that maximum contribution for 2018. Consider whether you could make IRA contributions if you don't have a 401k at work. And think about other ways you can kind of defer that income a bit. Michael, what do you think about this idea of I'm making a lot more money this year? You did something for me uh, years ago that was fabulous, which is you pointed out to me that, hey, you know, you're self-employed. 
Why don't you put in your own retirement plan? What are some of the rules about self-employment and putting it like establishing a retirement plan? Good point. If you have a self-employed income, you can set up your own retirement plan. There's many different types of retirement plans. Some of them have December 31st deadline. So it's really important that you know about that and set it up. The only plan that doesn't have a December 31st deadline is the SEP IRA, which you can set up all the way up until you file your tax return in the following year. However, this defined benefit plan, which will give you the maximum advantage and the most amount of money that you could potentially put away, is something that needs to be set up by year end. What about this idea? We had this guy on the show who is uh, named Ed Slot. You've heard. He's like a fixture on Long Island. Mm -hmm. He says that we have got to get out of this idea that everything should be pre-taxed because his belief is that this is probably going to be the lowest tax structure that we are likely to see, he thinks, in a generation. I don't know what your view is on that, but how would that change your calculus about what you might have done in past years versus this year? Well, this is a long game type of decision. And I absolutely agree with Ed, who's a wonderfully intelligent and great speaker. The issue here is a couple of different important points. First is clients tend to over-defer and wind up with all their money in these retirement plans. And they retire, they have a couple of bucks outside, but as they move into retirement, all the money that they want to live on is coming out of those retirement accounts, and that's taxable now. So some people can actually wind up in higher tax brackets in retirement than they had when they were working even. Mm. And they don't realize it. If you want to buy a car and that car, say, costs $40,000, you got to pull maybe $60,000 out of your IRA so that you can buy that car. So it's really important that people think about that and understand that while they have, might have a lot of money saved up on an after-tax basis, it's not nearly as much as they think. Mm, I hate that idea. But it is true. Like People will call up the radio show, call up the podcast, and they'll say, I got a million bucks. And you say, well, where is that? It's in an IRA. It's not a million. It's kind of like 650 depending on where you are, right? Essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about this idea around the... Standard deduction being higher. Brenna, you mentioned this. I think 85% of filers will be eligible for the standard deduction. What does that mean in terms of year-end planning? Well, it means things like, unfortunately, charitable contributions might not be as impactful in a given year. But there are ways to kind of make those more impactful in your future tax years or in occasional tax years. Mm -hmm. Um, But state income tax, property taxes, those are capped at $10,000. So those deductions, for especially for high earners, are not going to be nearly as powerful as they once were. Mm. But for a high earner, one thing that is helpful is that your bracket went down. Like, the, I mean, the rate went down on that top bracket, right? Yes, you bra- your rate went down on the top bracket. And if you were really sucked into the AMT, that alternative minimum tax, in most situations, you're not going to be subject to AMT. So it's interesting. There's probably because of the changes in AMT rules, your ability to itemize versus standard deduction, the rate bracket change. There's actually so many different permutations of scenarios that we've seen with clients. We, we tend to make this knee-jerk reaction and want to say, well, your situation, you're going to be better off or not. But in many situations, you can't tell till you actually run the projection, which is why we're strongly recommending that all clients this year more than ever go to their accountants, get projections based on last year and what they think this year is going to look like. Mm-hmm. One other really important point I want to make is the federal government made this assumption because the brackets went down that everybody's going to pay less tax. And while many people will pay less tax, surely not all, Mm -hmm. especially in high-tax states. It's really important that you understand that they reset the withholding tables for people on their payroll. 
And a lot of people are, are withholding less now, not because they made a decision, but because the government made a decision for them. And therefore, they might be very surprised in April when they find out how much they owe. A lot of your clients are self-employed. There are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are self-employed. If you were withholding based on last year's tax outcome, how would that impact you in a year like this year? If, again, you underwithheld, you just have to write a check. You're not going to be penalized, though, right? Probably not penalized. If you're paying quarterly. If you're paying your estimated payments, there's two different ways to pay estimated payments without getting into a lot of details. Most people pay on what's called protect based on last year's income, and they'll be fine. But it, like I said, especially for self-employed people, you must go to your tax repair, your accountant, your CPA, and get a estimate done uh, for this year. It's really important. And this year might be a year you look to really get a better sense of that retirement plan concept that you discussed earlier. Brenna, you mentioned this previously about charitable contributions. Do you think just, you know, in your experience, do you think that charitable contributions will be reduced because the tax benefit has changed? In our experience, the people that we work with who are charitably inclined and believe in giving have not changed their plan for this year, which is encouraging. I think charities should be encouraged by that. All right. That's they are good. being smarter about the way that they're making their contributions, though. So um, one way that people we encourage our clients to give is instead of using cash, using appreciated securities. So if they own an investment, whether it's a stock, a mutual fund, an ETF, and they're, they've had a gain in that position, they can donate that investment directly to a charity. Alternatively, they could use something called a donor-advised fund, which might allow them to make a big contribution in one year and several smaller gifts after that. Right. because And that's pretty easy to establish. I, Michael, the Fidelity has it, but do other mutual fund companies, they all have it, right? Yeah. So you start, you put it in, you, and, and this is kind of a neat concept. I love this because, you know, some years you're feeling a little more charitable than others because you've made more money. You put more money into that fund in the year that you've made a lot of money and you can just kind of swipe it in there. And and that moment when you put a highly appreciated security into the charitable account, right, into that donor advised fund, rather, then that's the moment that the gift is made. That's right? That's correct. That's when you get the deduction. OK, on the, so on the you, let's just pretend that you you work in a you know, you're working for the man. You got a job, but you got a side hustle and you made a bunch of money and you feel good. And, you know, your tax liability is going to be pretty big. And you're going to itemize anyway. So you think for this year, I know I'm going to itemize. I could put a slew of of, of money in right this second, take it from my highly appreciated security. Next year, I don't have to worry about it. I just have it funded for next year, right? That's right. And there's a multitude of benefits from doing so. Uh, The first is that you get the deduction in the year you really need it because of that increased income potentially, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, A small side benefit is, uh, you you know, we're all charitably inclined potentially, but we also want to make sure that we give it in a sort of measured fashion. If we suddenly give a much bigger donation than normal, we might find some new best friends that we didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. Uh, But more importantly, in the past, the concept of bunching expenses was always something that we talked about in tax planning. But now with this higher standard deduction, it's even more important than ever. Because let's say you were donating $5,000 every year to charity, just making that number up, and that's not going to get you to the standard deduction. But going forward, you might want to do 15 every every three years or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that'll help you with other deductions, get over the 24 for married 
uh, itemized deduction level, standard deduction level, excuse me, so that it makes more sense. So bunching is even more important than ever. Oh, my God. There's so much to think about. Um, let's talk about charitable for the required minimum distribution, which I'm now just doing for my mom. This has been in place already, okay? So we know that there is a way for people to use the tax code to basically say, I have a required minimum distribution. Instead of sending it to me, investment house, wherever you are, why don't you send it straight directly to my charity? And this is called a qualified charitable distribution, a QCD for people like you, Brenna. Uh, what does this What does this do for some older Americans with the RMD structure? So we love QCDs because you don't have to worry about whether or not your charitable contributions will impact or get you over the threshold for that itemized deduction. By doing a QCD, you're automatically removing that amount of taxable income from your tax return. It's not even going to be factored in. The charity is benefiting from your contribution, and you're also lowering your adjusted gross income, which is impactful for other things like calculating your Medicare premiums each year. Mm. So for retirees, especially who may not be in a very high tax bracket or may not have many itemized deductions, they can ensure that they get the deduction on the QCD and then also help keep their Medicare premiums lower. Mm, Interesting. All right. What other things should we be thinking about year end? We've now like sort of scorch the earth on looking at our income. We're looking ahead. Gift tax exclusion this year is how much? $15,000 this year. All right. So if you're married, you can give thirty grand to whoever you want. That's right. All right. Keeping in good. mind though now the new estate tax uh, lifetime exemption is pretty high. So very few people are actually paying the estate tax. Now. I wish I had to pay the estate tax. I wish that I was in that situation. What about, Breno, the 529 plans? It was a, a, a slightly different a twist on it with the change in the tax code. And that is that uh, we always have talked to on the show about, hey, put money into your 529 plan. So now you can put 15 grand or 30 grand as a couple. But now 529 plans in, I guess, is it finally determined that you can use it no matter what for a private elementary or high school or they're still state by state differentials? So it's still not clear on oh the state God. level. Unfortunately. Yeah. So it sounds like a great benefit on the federal level, and it definitely was a big part of the tax code. But every state that we've looked into thus far is still resisting the ability to use 529 assets to pay for primary and secondary education. Yes. Now, no doubt. I that, saw you wave your hand. Yeah, I got to throw this one in. Yeah. I think this is really important. And the reason I say this is because no doubt it's case by case and individual by individual. But the money you're paying now for your kids if they're in elementary school or so, it's just current cash flow and current expenses, which is hard. But I'm always a fan of sort of getting a grip of your expenses today and thinking a little bit more long term and long game here. Mm -hmm. And long game is college planning. And the reality of the college tuition is still going up higher and higher. And one of the dumbest things, Jill, one of the dumbest things people can do is spend enormous amounts of their personal fortune on college and ruin their personal financial situation, as you know all so well. and. That's why it's good to have rich grandparents like I did who paid for college, thank God. That's always a good option, too. So much better. You should have tried that. You'll try that next time, won't you? No doubt. I know. No doubt. I wish I could have done it the first time. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, But the point here is that the 529 plan, the power of the 529 plan, in my opinion, is not 
for the certain states that you live in where you get a, a state tax deduction. That's just sort of the carrot that gets people into the plans. Mm. But is the long term. So if you're putting money in while your kids are in grade school, you're getting tax-free growth of 10, 15 years of tax-free growth. And that's really the power of the 529 plans, not to use them short term for elementary school. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. You know that the average person basically does nothing around the year end. They don't take advantage of the calendar or the various tax benefits that could be occurring because you just don't want to think about it. That's what the average person does. But you're not the average person. That's why you're listening to this program. By the way, you're not the average investor either. So why are you settling for the same old average investing? Now there's a smarter way to manage your money. Betterment. Betterment is an online financial advisor for folks who refuse to settle for average. Betterment uses cutting-edge technology to build personalized portfolios and help you make more from your investments. Then they guide you along the way. Got advice to help you make smart financial decisions and all of this for one low transparent fee. Yeah, you know it. Investing involves risk. We say that all the time. That said, you are going to be an investor. You're going to have to assume risk. But for better off listeners, you can get up to one year managed free by visiting Betterment.com slash better off. That's Betterment.com slash better off. And now let's get back to our year end financial planning with Michael Goodman and Brenna McLaughlin. Medical expenses. Should I go get a knee replacement? Hurry up. Definitely. I mean, those, are still, those are still deductible uh, on medical expenses. However, as Brenna said so well, the there is an AGI hurdle on that. So you want to make sure that you have enough medical expenses beyond your uh, AGI in order to get that deduction. Remember when I called you and I was like panic stricken a year ago and I said to you like, I'm pass through what what uh, can you give us the do you want to weigh in on the pass through you want to let the CPA weigh in I'm on it I'm going to let the CPA weigh in on it You know what it's good to have that CPA hat so often <laughs> it's like you whip it out when you need to be it's like the white hat you're yeah. a white hat now Okay so let's just remind everybody that there are certain structures for small businesses you could be a sole proprietor you can have an S corporation you can have an LLC those are so-called pass-through entities and that means that you have a corporation or a company the money comes through that company but it essentially gets taxed at your whatever your ordinary tax bracket is then there was a change this year to what happened to these passive entities what was the change and who does it impact so the change was called qualified business income, and it was a very interesting set of rules that came out that said that if you meet certain criteria and have a certain kind of business, a certain percentage of your income could be taxed differently or excluded from your income than normally. Okay. And I say it that way because they're still trying to figure this out. There are not enough cases where there's fringe issues that could be debated and argued that have gone through that it's questionable. Interestingly enough, though, for most people that have their own business, they're going to have a hard time benefiting this because today's day and age, we're all in the service type businesses. And if you have a business that's basically attributable to you and your skill set, your reputation, and it's a service type of business, you're not going to be able to use it. So a financial advisor, for example, an accountant, an attorney is not going to be able to benefit from this law. However, for some reason, architects and engineers... Well, my brother-in-law wins. (laughs) Jeez. They were written in as able to get this deduction. Uh, But once again, there are an enormous amount of intricacies to this that 
don't seem obvious on the upfront. So if you if you think you're eligible, you really do need to seek out a qualified CPA to make sure you, you are. I feel like you're going to just rain on my parade, just like you did a year ago. Because when I just to put this in perspective, I called Michael up and I said, "I get this." He says, "You don't get this. You're you. This this is a business that completely relies on you, and you're the only you. You're it." And I said, "No, no, no. I manufacture something." And so he said, "What is that?" And I said, I manufacture audio and video content. And ergo, I'm a manufacturer and I should take advantage of this. And and there are people that are taking Mm -hmm. that viewpoint still. The question remains as to whether or not they are going to be able to be successful. How likely it is, do you think it is, that I, being one of the wimpiest people you know, would go out on a limb like that with with the IRS? Not too likely. (laughs) I think that's like probability (laughs) is actually zero. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, what else do we need to be thinking about? Brenna, um, we did we did a lot of stuff already. Um, what else should we be thinking about towards year end? Well, I think you make a good point that we may be, and again, no one has the crystal ball, but we may be in a historically low tax rate situation right now. And there could be ways to take advantage of that by making after-tax mm. moves of some kind in your retirement accounts. And that could be making Roth 401k or Roth IRA contributions, or it could be, you know, say this is um, an abnormally low income year for you, whether you're retired or you've changed jobs and you had a period of time with without income, you might consider doing a partial Roth conversion of an existing IRA, again, to kind of put away some money after tax that can continue to grow after tax and be withdrawn tax-free in the end. So this is a kind of a fabulous thing. I mean, you have it. I, I was just thinking about this woman who literally just called us and, you know, and, and she was retiring. I presume her tax bracket is going to drop because of that. But she's got this period in between claiming Social Security where she, you know, going to just live off of her portfolio. So her tax bracket could drop. So theoretically, she could take some of the IRA. She does not have to convert everything at once. That's right. Okay. So she could take some of her IRA account and maybe convert enough so she doesn't pop into the next tax bracket. And that's a pretty wide swath these days, especially for, I think, that, what's that big one, 22 or 24? It's like a huge, I happen to have it right here, which is frightening that I have it. I learned a long time ago, it's impossible to keep memorizing all the bracket changes Oh, here it is. Uh, Listen to this. The 24% tax bracket goes from 165 grand married filing jointly to 315. That's a massive, that's Mm -hmm. a massive spread. So, yeah, I mean, so if you think about it, if you were even if you were, you know, in the 22 percent going up by a couple of percent is pretty good. Mm-hmm. So you could do that. Do you want to try, Michael, to explain the backdoor Roth and the issue around the backdoor Roth? Happily. OK. Oh, I love that. You're like, I bring it on, Ooh, sister. Let's do backdoor Roth. I'm excited. I know you are. So the challenge in making contributions to Roth for a lot of people is they make too much money. So they can't make straight up contributions. So they lean towards conversions because people can do conversions regardless of your income level. But if you don't have an IRA to convert, you can't do a conversion. So what we do is we take the non-deductible contribution where people take a straight up IRA contribution that's not deductible because you make too much money and you put it into an IRA account because you're, you're, anybody's allowed to make an IRA contribution. The real question is whether or not it's deductible. Once the money's inside of the IRA, 
you now have the ability to convert because you have money inside of an IRA to convert. And therefore, it is known as the backdoor Roth contribution. There is a weird caveat that if you have an ex- if you do have an existing IRA, what happens around that backdoor? So if you have an existing IRA and you convert, the IRS looks at all of your IRAs when you go to convert. So if you have, say, $100,000 in an IRA and you want to convert that, they're going to look to that $100,000 as well as the $5,000 you might have already put in this other account and prorate your ability to convert that. So so a high portion of your conversion, about, let's say in my example, approximately 95%, is going to be taxable. So in other words, if you have existing IRAs, generally speaking, where the, if you have a specific question, you can obviously ask us. But generally speaking, if you have existing IRAs, don't be worrying about the back door. Start converting the existing IRAs a little bit at a time because then you're not subject to that weird rule, right? That's right. As long as you're in a low enough tax bracket that it makes sense to convert. I agree. The other option is if you're self-employed and have a self-employed 401k plan, you can roll your IRA potentially into your 401k, and now you don't have the IRA to worry about. Oh, right. You can also roll your IRA into your company 401k and not have that issue to do backdoors. You just have to be careful that make sure your, your company 401k is... A good enough 401k for you to roll that IRA into. Mm. So you don't want to sort of put it into a bad plan where you have sort of crappy investment options if mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense. Very good. Um, should we do some of the standard stuff? This is the easy. You do this in your sleep, Brandon, even four <laughs> years into the mission. Uh, let's talk about selling losers. Why are people so ridiculous about selling losers? What is their problem? They seem to like, that's not your child. It's a crappy investment. Mm-hmm. Sell your loser. Why are people so struggle? Why do they struggle with that? I think it's the resistance to admit defeat. Ooh. I think I think that uh, that sometimes it's just too painful to see that number, that loss number, and accept the fact that that investment is not going to kind of turn around for mm-hmm. you. Some people just think if they wait long enough, a loser will eventually become a winner again, and that. Maybe true, but it becomes more difficult to pin down if you're talking about a single company's stock. By the way, I also feel that way about relationships, that that loser may come around, but chances are you might as well cut your losses. Um, Okay, so it can also be like I've heard when sometimes I'll say to somebody, just sell that. It's at a loss. But but it's an index fund, Jill. What you know, like so. So, Michael, what what's the deal about replacing Let's say I own the Vanguard S&P 500 index. What can I replace it with and not be subject to the wash rule? Sure. So the wash rule states that you can't buy anything that's substantially similar within 30 days. So you can buy a different index. The S&P is an index. You can. Yeah. Well, you just got to think about this for one second. So the S&P is an index of large cap U.S. stocks. Okay. If you were to buy the Russell 3000, which is now 3000 stocks, which includes more medium and small companies, Mm. you'll have definitely a different index. You want to go even further to be even more comfortable, you can buy a world index and you'll definitely not be owning just What if I own US. the S&P 500 index and I buy an extended market index? No good? Too close? I would argue that that's different. Do you think the IRS is really going to catch that? Probably not. Well, who knows how and when they're going to catch these things. It also depends on the size of the transaction probably, but I've never seen that. Okay. Uh, what else do we need to know? We still can... Di- you can basically... Wash your losses against your gains. Still three grand to carry forward in losses, right, Brenna? Correct. Okay. I'm good with that. And I want to just go back to that individual stock discussion for a second that Brenna was bringing up about clients that sort of sit on one stock waiting for it to come back. Yes. One of my favorite questions to ask those clients is, 
let's say they had $10,000 invested in that stock. Yep. Would you invest $10,000 in that stock today mm. based on the price it's at right now? And most of the time I get the answer is no, mm. it's a dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, why do you continue to choose to own it every day if that's the case? Mm. The reality is if you sell it today, you're actually going to get a benefit in the tax loss. What about um, people who have company stock? Uh, a lot of times I'll say to people here at CBS, like unload it and they freak out. They cannot do it. It seems to me that the company stock is a like a separate weird animal. What do you what do you say to that, Michael? It is a weird animal and people have an emotional commitment to their companies in a lot of ways. They feel like they're being disloyal in fact by selling the stock and it couldn't be any further from the truth. The reality is you're in, you're contributing your entire human capital to that company. You're, in, you're so much of your personal net worth is tied up in that company textbook response is to not have all your income and your equity tied up in the same company. Um, Brenna, if you have a client who comes in, has got a million bucks, you know, generally doing fine, what percentage in an individual company stock makes you feel okay? Ooh, good question. Thanks. Burning questions. So I wouldn't want it to be any more than 5% under any circumstances. I think 5 is even maybe a little high for an individual company in mm-hmm. a portfolio, but um, you know, if when we see a new portfolio come in, we're sort of giving second opinions on what somebody currently owns. Our first piece of advice would be to kind of try to manage any concentrations in a single company to trim them down to 5%. And that's usually a first step in further diversifying. What if you your client says, Michael, oh, but the stock's in the gutter. I don't want to sell it. It's I know, I know, I know. What's your response to that? Well, I'd go back to, would you buy it now? If you Do you think it's a good investment? And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. The second question I would say to them is, do you think that that stock's going to outperform the market as a whole? Mm. And a lot of times they don't know. And it's a, it's a reasonable response. They just don't know. Well, my response to that would be, it better, right? Because if it doesn't outperform the market as a whole, you're taking on way more risk to own that stock. So you should be better compensated than the market as a whole. Oh, that's a very good point. All these things about like child tax credits and all that stuff changing, that's really not applicable until you're filing your taxes. There's nothing, you're not, well, I mean, I guess if you have a baby, hurry up, push yeah, it out now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you do on January 7th, yeah. you might want to go to the OBGYN yeah, hurry and ask up. for some Pitocin or something. Exactly. <laughs> oh, look at you. There's a man who has two children. Um, One born in late December. <laughs> what? December really? 30th. Is that right? My first child was born, as, as you know, my wife's a CPA as well. Yeah. He was due late January, in the 35th week he was born, preemie on December 30th. Wait a minute, because She's like, get out of here. We need the deduction this year. We got a lot of uh, comments from a lot of our CPA I'm friends. I'm sure. That's a little CPA humor for you folks. <laughs> yeah, very <laughs> geeky stuff. <laughs> Before we let you guys go, besides your adherence to the, you know, sort of a, a passive approach of investing, something has changed since you've been here, Michael, and that is that interest rates are a bit higher. And so people who have a bunch of money in cash, they might actually finally have some alternatives. What do they need to know? Well, they need to know, like you said, that interest rates have risen and they should really be reviewing their statements a little more carefully. First is, if you're not getting a a decent interest rate at the local bank, you should ask for one and or potentially move it to a savings account. Some of these online FDIC insured savings accounts are giving great rates now and you should do some extra work there to increase your cash. It's like free money that you're just not taking advantage yeah, of. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed now that a lot of those online high-yield savings are like 1.9%-ish. right, mm-hmm. that's right. And might be heading up towards two, and that's a lot when you got basically bupkis for the last five or six years. Um, all right, before we go, 
We have to now ask the uh, bookend question to our first question. Michael Goodman, founder of Wellstream Advisors. Michael, what is your worst financial decision? I would say my worst financial decision was probably not starting to save for myself early enough. You know, thinking that I was prudent with my financial situation and managing my income and expenses is one thing, but not saving. Even if you can only save a, a super modest amount of money, just starting that behavior. I remember when I got, I became a financial planner and got into the business and had started my own business and was very, very difficult times. Um, I started saving $25 a month. And the psychology of doing that every month really was very powerful for me. So I wish I'd done that sooner. Brenna, besides being in the magazine industry and maybe um, investing in your company stock at those various places, what would be the worst financial decision that you made? I think the thing I regret looking back on my in my financial life is not taking advantage of a Roth 401k in my 20s when I really had the maximum time horizon ahead of me. Do you know what makes me mad about that answer? Is that she was in her 20s when the Roth came out. Exactly. <laughs> 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 uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. It was great. And uh, we'll have you back. We'd love to. It's been a real pleasure and an honor to be on your cast. An honor. All Thanks right. so much, Jill. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to our special guests today, Brenna McLaughlin and Michael Goodman of Wealthstream Advisors. Remember, we drop new episodes of this program every Tuesday and Thursday. If you'd like to get on the air with us, by the way, all you have to do is just hop onto our website. Just go to JillOnMoney.com and there's a Contact Us button. Boom, do it right there. It's very easy. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13 and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.